0: Can I get an amen to that? I'm not sure if you have had a chance to meet Bob Healy, but he is a part of this church and he's he a real hero. You'll be hearing stories from people from our congregation all throughout this series. But real quick, here's a question. I need show of hands, okay? How many of you have had the chance or the opportunity to see your favorite band or at least one of your favorite bands live and in person? Raise your hands and keep them up. Let me see you. So quite a few. Okay, don't put them down yet, all right? Next question. I want to hear from you. No judgment, okay? Name the band. What was the band? Journey. Okay, Michael Jackson. Wow, it's impressive. Come on, keep shout them out. Foreigner, Crosby, Stills and Nash. That was before I was born, probably. Right? Just kidding. Just joking. Eagles. I heard Eagles. Who? How about over here? Dave Matthews Band. Yeah. All right. It's my college days. Yeah. Anyone else? Santana, yeah, the dude with the hat. Remember Santana? What was that like? What was it like seeing your favorite band? Just was it amazing? It's incredible, isn't it? This is one of the greatest experiences to see your favorite band live and in person with thousands of other people who are who are just as crazy about that band as you are, right? It's amazing. About, about a year ago, my wife and I were given an incredible opportunity to see probably our favorite band live and in person up in Charlotte. Do we have any Mumford & Sons fans in the room? Make some noise. Where are my people at? Okay. And I'm, I'm that guy who's usually my expectations are way too high. And so then when I don't I experience it, it's, it's never that fun, right? That wasn't like that. This, this exceeded my expectations. It was a phenomenal show. Right. And again, being in the midst of like thousands of people who who are all just as crazy about these songs as you are. It's it's, it's an awesome experience. And it's interesting to me because you're going to listen to songs that you've probably heard. How many times? Hundreds of times. Right. Driving around your car, singing to the top of your lungs. Yes, I've seen you doing that. Right, we we love this music. So you're going to listen song, to songs you're really familiar with, but still, when you when you like hear them live and in person with other people, it's kind of like hearing them all over again, right, for the first time. It's it's an amazing experience, and there's always that moment. This is my favorite part. There's always that moment when the band is singing like their song, right? They're, they have a lot of famous songs, but there's usually that one that they're, they're that's the most beloved by the fans. Right. So there's this moment where they stop playing their instruments and they back away from the microphone and let let the crowd sing. What's that like? Right. You get the goosebumps. You get the chills. It's an incredible. There is like this life. Y'all hang with me. There's this life. There's this energy that we experience whenever we're in the midst of a group of people who are who are all like passionate about the same thing. Right. Who are all centered and gathered around the same purpose. This happens at large sporting events as well. Right? Maybe you've been to a really big game, the national championship game last year. Anybody there? You can make some noise. College football's back. Come on, yeah. Even though you're pulling for a kind of a lame team, I'm sure. <laughs> forgive me, but I'm sure that was an incredible experience. That game was um, as amazing, right? You probably remember so much about it—the energy, the electricity, right? Again, we experience this life, this this energy. Whenever we're in the midst of people who who are all passionate about the same thing. Now, in our One Life class, which is our six-week small group launch, shameless plug right here, if you're not in a small group, now is the time. I'm speaking to you too, men. I'm looking at you, men. Wives, nudge your men. Say, pay attention. Men, we need each other. Men's small group launch is going to happen not this Tuesday, but next, all right? So if you're looking to get connected with other men who want to push each other forward, make sure you're there. There's also going to be a women's launch, but women, you tend to be a lot more uh, diligent about this sort of thing. Guys, we hide from it, so show up or I'm going to come looking for you, all right? All right, ladies, help me out. Yes? Okay, shameless plug is over. But in One Life, we talk about the difference between a crowd and a community, A crowd is a group of people who just happen to be in the same place at the same time. They're just there, right? But a community is a group of people who have come around, who are all committed to the same thing, who are passionate about the same thing. You don't experience that life, that electricity, that energy that we talked about. You don't experience that in a crowd. Like, when's the last time you walked out of the DMV with your hair on fire going, Whoa! Doesn't happen there, right? I mean, the only thing that you have in common with folks at the DMV is that you don't want to be there, right? But it's different. A community, right? You're not just there, but you're like there, right? You're all committed to the same thing. Here's why I bring this up. The church is not called to be a crowd. The church is not called to be a bunch of strangers who just happen to show up in the same place at the same time for an hour and some change once a week, That's a crowd. We're called to be a community. We're called to be a group of people who who are not only committed to any purpose, we're committed to the purpose. Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Last week, we kicked off what I I think is going to be a very important series for us in in the life of our church. We're we're calling it CORE. And Over the next several weeks, we're going to unpack what the leadership of Mount Horeb has identified to be our core Values in order to make sure that we're all singing the same song. Right? And really what these core values do is they, they serve as a way for us to remember, to remind ourselves of who we are, what we're about, what is ultimately most important to us as a community. Because I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we're growing. Have you noticed that? Yeah? We're growing, which is super exciting, really exciting. But at the same time, it's a little scary. Because often the bigger you get, the easier it is to forget to forget who you are, to forget what you're about, and you become a mile wide and an inch deep. And so we believe that these core values are super important for us. It's a way to lift up and clarify. This is what we think is important. It offers an opportunity for accountability to make sure we're being true to that, right? And at the same time, here's something else I want to say is that you're not a part of a community by association, right? You're not a part of a community because you're sitting in that seat right now. What makes you a part of a community is participation. It's involvement. It's investment, which means these values cannot be core to just the staff or just a select few of people, but these values must be core to all of us. Are you with me? Because I don't know about you, but I don't want it to be just another big church. Man, the world's got plenty of those. I want to be a part of a movement of God. Like, I want to see things actually change in the world around us because what's happening in our midst. Do y'all want that? But in order for that to happen, then everybody who's involved has to take seriously what it is that God has called us to. So these values have to be core to you just as much as they are to me. Are you with me? Yeah? Do I need to start talking about college football again to make, get y'all to make some noise? Maybe we can shout for the stuff that matters today. How about that? Yeah? Take it, amen. All right, so the core value we're looking at today is on earth as in heaven. And this should sound somewhat familiar because we say it almost every week, right? It comes to us from the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now y'all say it with me, ready? On earth as it is in heaven. Now to unpack this value, we're gonna be in Luke chapter 17. We're gonna dive into the passage that was just read for us a few moments ago. But in Luke 17, Jesus is approached by some Pharisees, and they ask him a question. ask Jesus, when is the kingdom of God going to come? Which tells us one thing right away. Something that they're waiting for. This kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God, is something they were expecting. Something they were anticipating. It's something that they had heard about before. And Jesus' response is intriguing. He says to them, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. I want to unpack this phrase, kingdom of God, because if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard it before, right? You've heard kingdom of God quite a bit, but I think it's easy sometimes to think you know what something is, but not actually know what it is. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, the first thing, this was what Jesus talked about. He talked about the kingdom of God more than he talked about anything else. In fact, I dare to say everything Jesus talked about had something to do with the kingdom of God. The phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven shows up 85 times throughout the gospels. That's a lot of kingdom talk, right? Right? And in fact, almost all of Jesus' parables, his famous stories that he tells, do you know how they begin? The kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like. So this is the thing Jesus talked about. This was the central thesis to all of his teachings. This was the point that Jesus was trying to make. Now, what makes it a little tricky for you and I, though, is that when we hear that phrase, kingdom of God, we tend to think of a place. Right, like what, what comes to mind when you hear kingdom of God? What do you think about? Heaven, right? You think about heaven. You think about where God is now. You think about where we might go after we die. That's what we tend to hear about. We hear, we hear the word kingdom. We think of united kingdom, right? We think of magic kingdom. It gives parents nightmares just thinking about that, right? But we think of place. This is not what Jesus meant or the Pharisees meant when they talked about the kingdom of God. First of all, let's, let's, let's look at the language, right? the language that's used. This word kingdom in the original language of the New Testament, which was ancient Greek, it's this word basileia. And if you looked at how this word was used, it very rarely, if ever, referred to a location or a place. Instead, it often referred to the power or the authority that a ruler had, that a monarchy had. It was referring to their power, to their authority. And so it's not so much a location as it is an authority. And so I would argue maybe for us, in our context, a better way to translate kingdom of God would be the rule or the reign of God. Are you with me? Now, this phrase in Jesus's day was also like a buzzword. It would have caught people's attention. Because they would have tapped into all of these cultural expectations, these hopes, or these beliefs that the people of Israel had about what their God, Yahweh, was going to do. About how their God was going to act and get involved in real human history. Now, in order to see this, I need you all to hang with me because we're going to get into it for a bit. All right, we got to really jump into the scriptures. I'm going to take you to several places, but we need to have a big picture understanding of this, I think, in order for us to really get at what Jesus is talking about. Can you dig it? Yeah? You got this? All right, because it's interesting. If you you read through the the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament, as we refer to it, guess what you won't find? The phrase kingdom of God. It's nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures, and yet Jesus talks about it all the time. What's up with that? And what you will find in the Hebrew scriptures often is God, Yahweh, referred to as a king, lifted up as a king. And one of the places you find this a lot is in the Psalms. In fact, there's a whole group of Psalms that are known as the enthronement Psalms that celebrate Yahweh as king. For instance, Psalm 47, verse two, for the Lord most high is awesome. Okay, amen. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Y'all see why Grace Marie and them have a job, right? We worship. It's one of the things we do. We worship together. Verse seven, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. Verse eight, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. So you get the picture, right? The image here is of God as king. Now, even though the Hebrew scriptures are very clear about that, they also are very honest about the fact that there are other rulers, there are other powers, there are other authorities at work in the world. And these authorities and these powers often oppose God and oppress people that God loves. For instance, Psalm chapter 2. You see both of these things kind of hanging together. Verse 1, why do the nations, and this is often the word used to sort of sum up all these different powers and authorities and rulers that stand in opposition to God. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now we've got to hold on to this. Because this is the worldview the Hebrew scriptures offer us. This is the worldview that Jesus had when he comes and he speaks about the kingdom of God. Where, yes, God is king. God is the final authority. But let's be honest. There are other powers. There are other authorities and rulers at work that oppose God's rule. And as a result, they oppress people, human beings that God loves. Behind all these powers is a real enemy. A real enemy. This is the worldview. And this is something that the people of Israel knew all too well. Because see, in the ancient world, they lived on a really valuable piece of land. We got anybody who plays Monopoly in the room? I'm a big Monopoly fan. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, right? I love Monopoly. Hang with me here. If we were playing ancient Near Eastern Monopoly, Israel, the country, would be like park place or boardwalk. I mean, it is valuable. It was right in the middle of the world's superpowers. They were surrounded Israel. And so it was a really strategic place. You wanted that land because it offered you access. If you held that land, you had a great strategic position. And so what Israel was used to was being attacked and being oppressed, being conquered. They were pushed to the side. They were used to having somebody else's boot on their neck. That's what they were used to. And so by the time of Jesus, for all sorts of reasons, one of the reasons being their own unfaithfulness, they had a hard time living in to this covenant that God made with them. They didn't keep their end of the bargain. But because of that and other things, Israel, by the time of Jesus, had been ruled over by empire after empire after empire. They'd been carried away to other nations and they lived as slaves. They were let, so some of the empires let them come back, but still when they lived there, they lived under their thumb. They were used to being ruled over. But in the midst of this, there are these people called the prophets. People like Isaiah, people like Daniel, who spoke to the people in their bondage. And Here's what they said. You can read about it. It's in your Bibles. Beautiful. They said, listen, it's not always going to be like this. I know it's hard to imagine and things are hard right now, but I promise you, it's not always going to be like this. One day God is going to act. One day, God is going to do something about all the suffering, about all the injustice, about all the oppression in the world. One day, God is going to make things right. And they, they, they spoke about this person called the Messiah. It was God's anointed. He was the one who would usher in the rule and the reign of God, the one through whom God would set everything right. And so what you find throughout the prophets in the Old Testament are descriptions of what the rule and reign of God will be like when it is fully established here on earth. And they're beautiful. They're breathtaking. I I wanted to read a couple of them to you. Is that okay? Even if it's not, I'm going to do it. So... But, but listen to these descriptions and just and tell me if this is something you long for. I know we're super excited because Carolina won, Clemson won. We can make some noise for that. But my question is, do, do you long for this? I mean, this is something that you want to see happen in our world today. Parents, is this the kind of world you want your kids to grow up in? I mean, listen to some of these descriptions. And remember, they're being spoken not to people who are comfortable, but people who are in the midst of oppression, in the midst of great suffering. The prophets speak these words. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. This is from Isaiah chapter 52. Those who bring good news, this is where gospel comes from. Gospel is good news to those who are poor, it's good news to those who are afflicted, those who are, in, are being oppressed. It's good news to you who proclaim peace. Oh, don't you love that word? How many of us want to know some peace, some wholeness, some completeness? who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who proclaim rescue, who say to Zion, the people of God, your God reigns, your God rules. Verse 10, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations and all the ends of the earth will see the rescue, the salvation of our God. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sound good to you? And then Isaiah chapter two, this one really hits me, especially now as a parent of young children, the kind of world I want my kids to grow up in, and in the midst of, of all the things we're hearing about happening in our world today. Listen, to this, this is a description of what it will be like when God is fully and finally reigning over the world. Isaiah chapter two, verse four, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. This part hits me. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Man. It's like one day we'll stop building bombs and instead we'll use our God-given ability to create to create opportunities for more life for people. You like the sound of that? I long for that day. You long for that day. Nation will not take up sword against nation anymore, nor will they train for war anymore when God reigns, when God rules. Isaiah 25. Verse four, speaking about God and sort of the priorities of this kingdom. You have been a refuge for who? For the poor. The gospel's good news for the poor. It's good news for the oppressed. A ref, refuge for the needy in their distress. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. And then verse six, this is the image we get, right? This is a picture we have of what it's like when God is fully reigning over the world. And it's a picture of a feast. How many of y'all like a good Feast. Like Thanksgiving-style feast where you eat too much and you put on your stretchy pants and you take a nap. But guess what? In this picture, this feast isn't just for us who already have. This feast is for everybody. For everybody. Listen to what it says. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for who? All peoples a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Can I get an amen to that? He will, sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. When we hear kingdom of God, When we hear gospel, this is what we should think about. It's basically shorthand for describing the world the way it will be when God is fully in charge, when things have been set right. So here's what this means. The kingdom of God is not a place. It's a reality. The kingdom of God is wherever things are the way God wants them to be. I mean, Jesus said it so succinctly in the Lord's Prayer so succinctly when he teaches us to pray your kingdom come your will be done those two phrases are synonyms you know what a synonym is synonym synonym words that mean the same thing any school of rock people in the house come on those two phrases are the way of saying the exact same thing god's kingdom coming is god's will being done The kingdom of God is wherever things are the way God wants them to be. Now tell me, is that something you want to see? Where are y'all at who are just cheering for college football? I mean, is this the kind of world you want your loved ones to live in? Do you want to see this happen? Yeah? All right, I'm going to ask you again in a little bit. Okay? Because here's my thing. I would argue that this understanding of the kingdom of God is not what most people think about when they hear phrases like kingdom of God and the gospel. I'd argue majority of people hear kingdom of God. What do they think about? We already admitted it earlier, heaven. It's that place where God is now, right? Not here, it's that place far away where God is, and it's that place we might go to one day after we die, right? And so for a lot of people, when they hear gospel, or they hear salvation, they think primarily about life after death. It's not about that now, it's about then. It's not about here, it's about there. Are you with me? That's what a lot of people think about when they hear these phrases. this is so important. This isn't just semantics. This isn't just getting our definition right. Here's the deal. What we believe about the gospel ultimately determines how we respond to the gospel. And so in your mind, where the kingdom of God is just that place up in the sky where God is, and if the gospel is just about what happens to me after I die, then this results in understanding of salvation that's nothing more than escape. It's evacuation. I mean, the point is to get away from this place as fast as you possibly can. Right, so so why why bother changing anything, right? I mean, I, I think this would help to explain why a large majority of the church at least in our part of the world, is often disengaged and isolated from the broken places in the world. Because again, remember, if, if your understanding of, of salvation is all about life after death, and I'll tell you what, I'll come down to the altar, I'll say that prayer, I'll make sure my eternal security is taking place, but then I'm just going to sit back and wait. I mean, God's going to blow all this up anyway, right? Why bother? I'm just going to wait. Maybe I'll buy a few t-shirts, get a bumper sticker. That's really about it. And for me, this is why I had such a hard time with the Christian faith growing up, especially when I got into college, because Christians look like a bunch of people waiting to die, right? This is not the gospel Jesus came proclaiming. This is not the gospel Jesus preached. I mean, for the first hand, when Jesus first goes public, you know what his message is in the gospels? Repent, change your mind, for the kingdom of God is what? It's near, it's near. It's at hand. If the kingdom of God is just somewhere else, how can this sort of kingdom be drawn near? Or go back to the Lord's prayer. What's Jesus's desire? That we get sucked up to heaven? Or what? That heaven comes here. That the reign of God happens here. And then when Jesus speaks about the day, throughout the gospels, the day when God is fully reigning, you know what he refers to it as? Not the destruction of all things, not the abandonment of all things, the renewal of all things. Don't you love the sound of that? And if you read the end of your Bible in Revelation, the picture we have, again, is not of everybody floating off to the sky, but it's of heaven coming to earth. It's of God ruling and reigning and setting things right. So hear me when I say this. In Jesus, God is not abandoning the world. God means to rescue it. God means to redeem it. God means to renew it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of God's reign coming to earth, of the healing and restoration and renewal of this world that God God loves. Let me ask you this question again. Is that something that you want to see happen? Thank you. Still feel like you can do better than that. I mean, is this what you're passionate about? Hold on to that question. Think about it, because then notice what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Again, they ask him, when is the coming of kingdom of God? When is that going to happen? And Jesus says to them, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. This phrase, in your midst, sometimes it gets translated as within you. And I'm really uncomfortable with that because I think it makes it sound like the kingdom of God is just sort of this inside, totally spiritual, private interaction between you and God. Right? It's just between you and God. It's this thing that God does in you and just stays there. Jesus never speaks about the kingdom of God like that. The kingdom of God may start there, but guess where it always shows up? Out in the world around us. It shows up publicly publicly. The kingdom of God may start in you, but guess what? The kingdom of God always goes out here and it always stands up and it speaks out against things like racism. It speaks up for the needy and the poor and the oppressed. The kingdom of God does not just stay inside of you. If Jesus Christ has got a hold of your life and I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to be diligently giving your life to making this world a better place. The kingdom of God always shows up publicly, at least in terms of the way Jesus speaks about it. At the same time, I can be so bold, the way the NIV has translated it here in the passage that I've read to you, in your midst, I think is not quite it either. The language Jesus used is more, is more aggressive. The way in your midst sounds to me is like, well, it's there, it's just kind of hard to see. It's there, but you just gotta find it, right? That's not quite what Jesus is saying. I like the way New Testament scholar N.T. Wright translates this verse. He says it like this, it's within your grasp, within your grasp. And here's what he says about this verse. He says, the phrase is active. It doesn't just tell you where the kingdom is. It tells you that you've got to do something about it. It's within your grasp. It's confronting you with a decision, the decision to believe, trust and follow Jesus. It isn't the sort of thing that's just going to happen so that you can sit back and watch. God's sovereign plan to put the world to rights is waiting for you to sign on. God's sovereign plan to put the world to rights is waiting for you to sign on. The kingdom of God is not just something that happens to us. It's something that happens with us. It invites us to be a part of it, to play a role in it. So I'll ask you again, is this something that you want to see happen? What are you doing about it? What are you going to do about it? Now, hear me when I say this. I'm going to be very clear. I don't believe the world will ever be set right until Jesus Christ returns. Now, what I'm about to tell you sounds crazy, but it's what I believe, and I think it's what a lot of you believe in this room, perhaps, maybe. It sounds nuts. But here's what I honestly believe. Stake my life on this the same Jesus Christ that walked the face of the earth, the same Jesus Christ that was crucified, dead, and buried, and the third day he rose from the dead, that Jesus Christ, I believe, one day is going to return here. That sounds nuts, but it's what I believe. He's going to come back in flesh and blood as a real-life resurrection. Now you're making some noise. I like this. And when that Jesus returns, you know what he's going to do? He's going to finish what he started that first Easter Sunday. When the invasion of God's new world broke through right here in the midst of this one, when God's kingdom started, it happened that day, 2,000 years ago, and it's never stopped since. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to finish that. He's going to set things right. That's what I mean when I say, I don't believe the world will ever set me right until that happens. Now, hold on. The New Testament authors speak about that day as the day of the Lord. Whenever you read that in the New Testament, that's what they're talking about. It's the day when Christ comes back. It's the day when Jesus sets things right. Now there's this interesting passage in 2 Peter where the author tells us to look forward to the day of the Lord, to long for the day of the Lord, but then get this, and speed it's coming. Hmm. Look forward to the day of the Lord and speed it's coming. You know what that tells me? That there's some sort of relationship between when that day happens, when the world is set right, and what you and I do right now. There's a relationship between when that happens and what we do with our lives right now, what we give ourselves to, what we're passionate about, how we spend our energy and our resources, what we give our lives to. So you want to see the world set right, what are you doing about it? How are you using your life to accomplish that great purpose? Don't you love that word purpose? Here's one of the things I love about our faith. I don't think we talk enough about. Our faith offers us real purpose, meaningful purpose. Jesus doesn't just save us from our sins. He saves us into the kingdom of God. And I would argue every single person in this room longs for purpose longs for meaning. Whether you're religious or not, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what? I hope today is just blah. We want our lives to matter. We want to be a part of things that matter. In fact, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, is the number one selling book of all time besides the Bible. Why is that? What's that tell you about what people want? We want purpose. We long for meaning. But I wonder how many of us actually have it. We had our first business leaders luncheon a couple weeks ago. It was a really great time. Anybody here there? Anybody? Okay, I see your hands up. We're going to do this from time to time, but it's an opportunity for business leaders to come together and network and, and hear from one another. We had our very first one, and the room was full of local business leaders from our community, and the speaker got up and was sharing with us and asked the question. Here's the question. What's your purpose? I'm not talking about your job title, your salary, your 401k, the name of your company. I'm talking about your purpose. What's your why? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? It was a great conversation. But afterwards, I had at least five or six people come up to me and say, you know what? That question bothers me because I have no idea how to answer it. I don't know. I don't know my purpose. I can imagine there are a lot of us in this room, we feel the same way. And here's the deal. I, don't, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about how we find sort of our kingdom purpose. And we're not going to have enough time to cover all of it. And so I'm going to, next Sunday, I'm going to have uh, what I'm calling on earth as in heaven workshops, right? We're going to keep talking about this. How do we find that kingdom purpose? We'll be over in the, in the East building. There's information in your bulletin down at the bottom. I'm going to offer two of these, two of these workshops, where we'll talk some more about this. And I wanted to ask several questions of you this morning in regards to this. I don't have time for that. I'm only going to ask one. One question this morning. This this is the question God kept bringing me back to. I believe there are more, but I believe this this is the first one. This is the most important one, and it's really simple. Here's what it is. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? What tears you to pieces? What messes you up? What do you lose sleep over? What are you weeping for? What... Breaks your heart. Now, where I think that there are other questions we have to ask, I believe this is the first question we have to ask. See, often we, we don't start with that question. The question we often start with is what is this thing I'm supposed to do with my life? Right? What's this great thing that I'm supposed to do with my life? And it's really, it's not a bad question. It can't be the first question because tell me, with that question, who's the focus still on? Who's it on? It's on you. Right? It's this quest for significance. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a God-given desire, significance is. But when we lead with it, we get into trouble because here's why. You and I have a hard time getting over our insecurities and our insufficiencies. I'm serious. Like how many times you had the thought, oh man, it'd be great if somebody did this? And then your next thought was: Well, I'm not qualified for that. Am I right? But instead, when you lead with the question, "What breaks your heart? What disturbs you? What disrupts you?" What it does is it introduces urgency that pushes you past all of that. I mean, for instance, if I were to see my son choking, like turning blue, choking, would I stop? I shouldn't get involved. I don't know proper CPR techniques. I might. What would I do? I would act. I would get involved. I would do something about it. Now, sure, afterwards, that's no excuse for not learning proper techniques and being educated on the back end, because I'll be honest, the kid keeps shoving handfuls of full grapes into his mouth. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But see, we, we, we lead with, a lot, with the wrong question. But instead, if our hearts are torn open for something, it, it, it moves us quicker towards doing something about it. So I think, think the people that I know who have the least insecurity about their purpose are people who are face-to-face and knee-deep in real suffering in the world. People like Bob Healy, who you heard from the beginning of the service, they're not insecure about their purpose because they found something that's wrong in the world and they're doing something about it. I think we try to find purpose apart from passion. That word passion comes from this Greek word, pasho, and it's believed that it was first used to describe Christ's sufferings on the cross. First time the word was ever used. Pasho, passion, always involves suffering. We try to find purpose apart from passion, purpose apart from suffering. I'm telling you, it's not there. It's not there. I mean, Paul says to us in Philippians chapter one, the apostle Paul, he says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him as well. That's our word, passio. He's not talking about natural disasters or mindless suffering or difficult things because he goes on to talk about what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This is redemptive suffering. This is about finding a broken thing in the world and giving your life to making it right. That's what he's talking about. And so often we look for purpose apart from that. I'm telling you, it's not there. We look for purpose in the midst of comfort. It's not there. It's so countercultural, isn't it? One of the highest values of our culture is comfort. It's like, man, buy all this stuff. Get passionate about stuff that doesn't really matter. And guess what? You won't have to see any of that. You won't have to hear any of that. You won't have to feel bad about any of those things. You can just sort of be comfortable. It's not working, is it? There's no purpose there. There's no meaning there. I mean, I just think about our technological advances, the things we get excited about. It usually has to do with comfort convenience. A friend of mine, when the Apple watch first came out, he's all into that kind of stuff. And so he went to the Apple store and was looking at one of them and a store clerk saw him and walked up to him and said, oh, hey, that thing right there, it'll change your life. Friend's like, ooh, tell me more. He's like, well, how, this is really, this is a sales pitch. How much time do you think you spend, and energy, do you spend taking your phone out of your pocket to check it? Imagine, just imagine how much of your life you'll get back when all you have to do is look at your wrist, right? He ended up buying one. (laughs) But he told me, you know where that watch spends most of his time? In a drawer in his bedroom. And one of the highest values in our culture is comfort. And we look for purpose there, but it's not there. Purpose is in suffering. It's in suffering. And in Philippians 1, Paul calls it a gift. It's been gifted. It's been granted to you to suffer for Christ. It's a gift. I know that to be true. Several months ago, I had the opportunity with some some men to travel to Haiti to see what God is doing there and look for opportunities for our church to partner with that. And we're going to be taking several trips back to Haiti. Some really exciting things happening. I can't wait to share more with you about that. But I'm not sure if anybody in the room has ever been to Haiti. I'm going to tell you, it's a hard place to go. It's a hard place to go. I've been to a lot of places, I've never seen poverty like I saw in Port-au-Prince. It's awful. And while we were there, we were invited to come see an orphanage in Haiti. And, and orphanages in Haiti, um, they're there not, not because children, for the most part, don't have any family, they're there because of poverty. If parents can't take care of their kids so they think it's better to drop them off in an orphanage where or they might have a chance to have enough to eat. So as you can imagine, orphanages in Haiti are often overpopulated and underfunded. And this orphanage was just like that. Half-built buildings, kids everywhere, all of them beautiful. You want to take them all home. But I remember we were walking around and we walked into this room and we stumbled upon this little girl who was curled up on a mat. Let me give a picture of it. And she was sick. I don't know if it was because she had the flu or a cold, but she wasn't breathing well. Breathing was very, very labored. When I saw her, this messed me up. It tore me up. Because when I looked at her, you know who I saw? I saw my daughter, my Gigi baby. And what broke my heart was the fact that if that was my girl, she wouldn't be laying on a dirt floor by herself, she'd be in my lap. And we certainly wouldn't be losing sleep over the fact that she might die because she has a cold, because she doesn't have enough to eat. And and, and deep inside of me, I felt this, that shouldn't happen. That's not right. Just because this isn't my daughter doesn't mean that that is okay. I took a picture of this because I never wanted to forgive it. Forget it. Because on the one hand, it's one of the hardest things I've ever seen. But let me tell you this, it was also a gift. Because in that moment, guess what I wasn't thinking about? Most of the garbage I think about while I'm here. Most of the things that take up my mind and my energy that really don't matter. This is why suffering is a gift. It wakes us up to the things that actually matter. It rescues us from living a life that doesn't matter. So the question I want to ask you right now is, what's this look like for you? What breaks your heart? Because the kingdom of God is cross-shaped Jesus says to us, you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to find a broken place in the world and go there and partner with me and put in the pieces back together. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to move into a time of prayer. And I know some of you, you probably want to get out of here. You think this is your cue to leave. Please don't. Wherever it is you think you have to go, wherever you have to be, I promise you, it's not as important as this moment can be right here, right now. Your kids are fine. But let's spend some time together right here, inviting the Holy Spirit to disrupt us and to open us up, to wake us up. For some of you, when you hear that question, what breaks your heart? That's an easy question for you to answer. You know. So maybe what you need to do right now is invite the Holy Spirit to show you what does it take? What's that, what's that step towards that look like? How do you get involved? There's some people out in the hallway from Epworth, the children's home. would be a great place for you to go. Talk to them. They're, they're trying to empower churches to get involved in the foster care system. There are 4,000 kids in the foster care system in South Carolina, but only 1,400 homes. So one of the things they want to do is empower churches to fill in that gap. And if that interests you, talk to them. They're right outside the hallway. But again, we'll begin to discuss more of this next week. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're just numb. You're apathetic to all of this. You keep checking your news, news from the games last yesterday. Maybe what you need right now is to pray maybe the most bold prayer you can pray. God, break my heart for what breaks yours. At the same time, today's a national day of prayer for Texas. So let's just spend the next few moments inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for those of us whose hearts are broken, I pray you give us wisdom to know what to do next, to do the next right thing. And give us a sense of urgency to do something, to get involved. Those of us in this room who, for honest, our hearts are just hard. We're cold, we're apathetic. Lord, mess us up. Break our hearts for the things that break yours. Rescue us from a life of apathy, a life of indifference, and set our heart towards the things that matter. What I want to do now is I want to invite y'all to stand. What we're going to do is we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. But my hope is that this time you say it with some new insight. Maybe you mean it a bit more than you have in the past because you can grow familiar with something like this to the point where, you, where it loses its power. But my hope and my prayer is that as we pray through it now, that we don't pray through it as familiar, but it's somehow new, it's different. It's a prayer that we mean, because I'm telling you, if you mean it, it's the most dangerous prayer you could pray. So how about we all pray it together right now, but let's pray it like we mean it. Can we do that? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here we go. Come on. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.